Good evening, everyone, and welcome to uh, the keynote address for this year's ACE Festival. Uh, the ACE Festival at EMU is uh, an annual event every spring. ACE stands for Academic and Creative Excellence. The festival began back in 2018. Uh, so this is the fourth, uh, fourth annual ACE Festival keynote address. Um, the keynote address, uh, for the keynote address, we usually invite a speaker uh, who can speak in relationship in some way to the EMU Common Read for the year. And as many of you know, this year's Common Read is Padre Gotuma's In the Shelter, uh, a, a series of essays and spiritual reflections. So we thought this would be a good year to invite uh, someone to speak to us about uh, spiritual writing as both as a genre and a kind of spiritual discipline. You'll hear more about that later this evening uh, when our president addresses uh, our speaker for the, for the evening. But it was uh, a great opportunity to invite Rabbi Niles Goldstein back to EMU's campus. Before we get started, I want to Thank uh, our sponsor, FM Bank. They've been the very generous sponsors of our keynote uh, address since the ACE Festival's inception in 2018. So, FM Bank, thanks for uh, your continued support. Um, following the address this evening, there will be about a 10 minute QA session. So, I would uh, encourage you uh, during, the, during Niles' talk, um, as questions occur to you, type them into the Q&A uh, button on the bottom of your screen, not the chat function, uh, but the Q&A so that uh, this, the speaker and moderator will be able to see those questions when we get to the Q&A uh, session. Uh, many of you are joining us here on Zoom, others on Facebook Live. If you're on Facebook Live, you can also type questions into the comment section there, and we have somebody monitoring that who will relay uh, the questions on to our Zoom session. Um, this might also be a good time to mention that Rabbi Goldstein has very generously donated a number of copies of his book, Eight Questions of Faith, uh, and encouraged us to distribute them for free to students or faculty or other people who might be interested. Uh, we still have a few copies of copies of those left. If you're interested in obtaining a copy of that, would encourage you to contact Professor Marty Eads, who will be able to connect you up with a copy of the book. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our president, Susan Schultz-Huxman, who will introduce the speaker for the evening. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Fred, uh, and greetings, friends of uh, EMU. Uh, it's good to see everyone tonight, even if by Zoom, uh, we are glad you are with us in this space uh, to celebrate scholarship of this place. Uh, as president of EMU, I extend a warm welcome to the fourth annual Academic and Creative Excellence Festival or the ACE Festival, as we call it. Uh, the ACE Festival is designed to accomplish at least three goals. First, to recognize excellence in research, 
at EMU, second, to raise the visibility of the diversity of scholarship that goes on every year at EMU, and third, to validate liberal arts education, to examine the rigor, relevance, impact, and interdisciplinary richness of research that pulsates from the liberal arts fields. And speaking of the relevance of research, I note that there are nearly a dozen papers and projects interspersed through this ACE Festival Week that deal directly or indirectly with race and justice research questions. In light of the trial verdict last night, an historic moment by any measure, I feel especially proud to be a part of a faith-informed Peace and Justice University surrounded by scholars and aspiring student scholars who study racial justice, equity, oppression, and inclusion issues, not only because it's fascinating, but because it matters. I want to say a special thank you to the ACE team, the planners, promoters, and participants. Hats off to all of you, especially to Professor Marty Eads and Administrative Assistant Diane Farrar. What creativity and flexibility uh, they have garnered uh, to put on display this week, uh, a whole online uh, ACE Festival over the course of a week. A, a key feature, Fred has already mentioned this, but a key feature of any high-end academic event is to attract a noted scholar who exemplifies the kind of research that we aspire to conduct at EMU. So tonight, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce to you Rabbi Niles Goldstein. Rabbi Goldstein is a sought after speaker in the North American faith community. He teaches widely on spirituality, personal growth, the environment, leadership, and congregational innovation. You don't often find those two words paired together, Niles. Uh, he, he is a prolific and award-winning author of 10 books, including The Challenge of the Soul, God at the Edge, Gonzo Judaism, and Eight Questions of Faith, among others. He is also a seasoned media resource, including for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Christian Science Monitor, the Chicago Tribune, Huffington Post, NBC, CNN, NPR, and the BBC, among others. And here's an interesting tidbit. Niles was the voice behind Ask the Rabbi on the Microsoft channel. Currently, Rabbi Goldstein is the spiritual leader of Congregation Beth Shalom of Napa Valley, California, and founder of the Napa Center for Thought and Culture. Previously, he was founding rabbi of the New Shul, an independent synagogue in Manhattan's Greenwich Village, where he served for over a decade. Believe it or not, Neil has time for fun stuff too. He is an avid traveler and outdoor adventurer. He has mushed dogs in Alaska, ridden horses in Mongolia, performed humanitarian work in Central Asia, and mastered the martial arts. He holds black belts in karate and taekwondo. 
No stranger to EMU, Rabbi Goldstein was a visiting scholar here in 2014 as part of the visiting scholars program of our very own Center for Interfaith Engagement. In fact, he'll be speaking to us about the book that he worked on while at EMU. And like a true scholar, he is innately curious. In fact, he writes in Eight Questions of Faith, Biblical Challenges that Guide and Ground Our Lives. He writes this, what has intrigued me most about the Hebrew Bible is not its dramatic stories, colorful characters, or moral lessons, but its questions. These many and varied questions are profound, pedagogic, rhetorical, challenging, and at times painful. At their core, almost all these questions are as relevant and compelling today as they were in antiquity. Tonight, we are in for a treat, Dreams, Drama, and Dogma, Spiritual Writing Through the Centuries is the title of his keynote address tonight. Welcome back to EMU, Rabbi Niles Goldstein. Thank you very much, Susan. I um, very much appreciate your welcome and introduction. Uh, thanks also to Fred. Um, I want to give a little bit of a shout out to the CIE team, both current and from when I was there. Um, Tim Seidel, I know, is leading it now, but uh, I worked with uh, Trina Nussbaum and John Fairfield and Ed Martin. Um, I have such great memories of my time uh, teaching at EMU. Uh, in fact, one of the two courses I taught was uh, the presentation I'm going to be making tonight in, you know, much more truncated form. Uh, but it was a really um, transformative year. And even though I've done interfaith work for a very long time, uh, I learned quite a bit about the Mennonites when I was in Virginia and in the years since. And uh, I treasure all the relationships um, that I made. And I'm just so grateful that you invited me back. I just wish it weren't during COVID, even though um, things are a lot better now, but maybe another time we can do it in person. Uh, but thanks again for that, for that introduction. Um, so in light of time, I'm going to just dive uh, right in to the material and I'm going to share my screen so uh, I can do that. And um, unless I hear otherwise, I will assume that we are in good shape right now. Okay, so as Susan said, I'm going to be talking about dreams, drama, and dogma, spiritual writing through the centuries. And this is really um, a, a genre that um, not everyone knows about because it's not often taught as a standalone course in the academy, at least not to my knowledge. So when I had the opportunity at EMU to create an elective um, I think we called it something a little bit different. Uh, I was really excited to do that. So um, I'm, I'm happy to be able to present it to you now in, in a more condensed form. So why am I interested in this, in this subject? Well, as Susan pointed out, I've written a number of books over the years. Writing has always been a very important part of my life, both as a man and, and as a rabbi. Um, and I have really tried in, in my rabbinic career, I've been a rabbi now, 26 years, it's hard to believe, uh, to really harmonize the, the two. So what I write about 
uh, and those of you who've, who've read my most recent book, Eight Questions of Faith, um, you probably know I share a lot from, from my personal journey um, in my writing. I share personal narratives, personal views. I also bring material in from scripture, from literature, from philosophy and, and psychology. Um, but but the, the two areas together, both spirituality and literature or writing have always been really important. So, so this presentation and the course I taught were really about both of them together, spiritual writing um, as a totality. Now tonight, I'm going to limit myself only to the Abrahamic faith traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. <clears throat> We're going to focus just on the content, the style, and the purpose of the texts. Uh, I'm not making any evaluation about quality. I'm not trying to compare modern writers to ancient writers. We're just going to look at, at content style and purpose. And we're going to look at a few different forms. You know, spiritual writing may be a genre, but there's a whole subset of um, structures, of, of forms within it. Uh, books, poems, psalms, sermons, uh, essays, proverbs. There are many different types of spiritual writing. And you're going to see tonight some of the different orientations within them. Uh, some of the writing is confessional in nature. Some of it is devotional. It almost feels like a prayer. Some is philosophical and some is autobiographical, almost like a, a, a memoir. And we're going to get a little taste of all of that. So I want to start with Jeremiah. Um, I want to start with biblical material because I think that the Hebrew Bible serves as a good foundation for later Western spiritual writing, uh, particularly uh, writing coming from the other Abrahamic traditions, uh, Christianity and, and Islam, which also hold the Hebrew Bible to be sacred. So Jeremiah was a very important prophet, one of the older uh, prophetic figures, and he lived roughly 2,600 years ago. He lived during a time of great tumult and violence in the ancient Near East. It was a time of civil war after King Saul and King David and then King Solomon passed. Israel was basically divided into northern and southern kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel to the north, which had its own capital known as Shechem, modern day Nablus, and the kingdom of Judah to, to the south, which had Jerusalem uh, as, as its capital. And there was, there was war, there was violence uh, between the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And because they were so weakened because of this civil war, um, Judah in the South ultimately became a vassal state, kind of a, a pawn traded in between different foreign powers. And ultimately it, it fell to Babylonia, uh, a regional superpower in that world um, in the year 586 BCE. And the prophet Jeremiah bore witness to this devastation firsthand. <clears throat> and so the book of, of Jeremiah um, talks about that experience. And in this book, uh, it contains some of what scholars refer to as Jeremiah's confessions, uh, these kind of emotional and cathartic expressions of what is going on in Jeremiah's heart and soul. The book of Jeremiah contains a lot of other things, uh, prophecies, you know, moral um, commands, but we're only going to look at a few of the brief uh, confessions. And um, a lot of people view it as a kind of precedent for spiritual autobiography, 
in its depth and, and in its scope. And I, I put this in parentheses because I don't think I'm qualified to, to say definitively that this was the first spiritual autobiography or spiritual memoir, but certainly in, in the Hebrew Bible, um, and we're going back almost three millennia now, uh, there's really nothing quite like it. So it was a very impactful and influential book uh, on later spiritual writing, at least in the Abrahamic or, or Western tradition. So let's take a look now at a few of the um, actual uh, verses from the book of Jeremiah. This is uh, Jeremiah 1, 5 through 6, when God calls him. <clears throat> Before I formed you in the womb, I chose you. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you prophet to the nations. And then this is Jeremiah speaking. And then I said, ah, my Lord Yahweh or Adonai, look, I don't know how to speak. I am only a boy. And what we see here is resistance. Uh, Jeremiah is called by God to be a prophet. And like other prophets before him, Moses, when he receives the call out of a burning bush in the book of Exodus, or the prophet Jonah, who Jews read uh, during the high holy days in, in the Jewish calendar, he also runs away from his divine call. Lots of prophets run away from the divine call because it's really tough, and we're going to see why. So he resists the divine call. But ultimately, God uh, pushes him, God reassures him, and Jeremiah accepts the mantle of prophetic leadership. Then we go on a little bit later, and we get one of the first confessions. Oh, my bowels, my bowels, I writhe. Oh, walls of my heart. My heart is in storm within me. I cannot be still. You have heard, O oh my soul, the trumpet blast, the battle shout. Disaster comes hard on disaster. All the land is laid waste. Now, prophets often warned people, the Israelites, of impending calamity. And a traditional interpretation here is that God used the Babylonians as agents uh, to, to punish the Jewish people for their sins, for the civil war, for their lack of fidelity to the, to the covenant. And Jeremiah, in, in metaphorical prophetic terms, is saying, I hear the, the battle cry. Uh, I, I know that disaster is going to lay waste uh, to the land of, of, of Judah. Um, and because of that, he's in pain. He says, oh, my bowels, the walls of my heart, there's a storm within me. He says this over and over again. Uh, in, in, in the biblical book, um, and he expresses his pain. And it's very interesting to see here that pain is a part of his spiritual journey. At least for Jeremiah, spirituality and the prophetic role is not warm and fuzzy at all. Uh, the spiritual journey of Jeremiah, at least in his confessional sections, is very painful and very difficult. And again, there's nothing quite like that uh, in, in the Hebrew Bible. He goes on later um, in, in uh, the book uh, to say, you seduced me, uh, Yahweh, and I let you. <clears throat> you seized me and overcame me. I become a day-long joke. They all make fun of me. He's talking about his people. For whenever I speak, I cry out, outrage, robbery, I shout. Ah, the word of Yahweh has gotten for me scorn and endless abuse. He almost seems to be saying that I have been sentenced by God to a life of isolation and torment. 
he, he's essentially saying that, that the Jewish people are looking at him, this prophet railing like a madman on, on a soapbox about um, how they have fallen so far short of God's ideal for them, and they're going to be um, devastated because of it, and they don't like it. They don't, they don't want to be told how bad they are, and so he has to deal with scorn and endless abuse. Um, you know, th this is not anything that is really fun and really goes back to why he resisted in the first place. And then it gets worse and worse to the point where Jeremiah, by the end, almost expresses uh, an existential crisis, a kind of suicidal despair. He says, cursed be the day whereon, whereon I was born, the day my mother bore me, be it ever unblessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. It's a boy. You've got a son. It almost sounds blasphemous. And then he goes on a couple verses later and says, because he killed me not in the womb, so had been my mother my grave, and pregnant forever her womb. Ah, why came I forth from the womb? To see but trouble and grief, and end my days in shame. So the book of Jeremiah in these confessional sections, which get worse and worse and worse, he starts by expressing resistance to being a prophet. Then he talks about all the scorn and abuse he gets from, from his people. And then by the end, he wishes he had never even been born. Clearly, these confessions convey deep pain and pathos on the part of Jeremiah. And, and for that reason, in, in many ways, at least within the genre of spiritual writing, um, they, they convey a kind of authenticity that a lot of later spiritual writers, for example, Augustine, who we're going to be looking at later, um, really try to convey. There's a kind of honesty and authenticity um, in a lot of spiritual writing that um, uh, we don't often see in, in other types of, of writing. And we're going to see that tonight. So let's move on to another biblical book, <clears throat> the book of Psalms. And I, I'm going to spend less time on, on the books that follow than I, than I did on Jeremiah. A little bit about its, its context. We don't know exactly when the book of Psalms was written. Um, it goes back a, a long, long way. Uh, but some of the, the Psalms uh, date to the post-exilic period, uh, post the Babylonian conquest. So again, we're dealing with many Psalms that are 2,500 years old and, and um, and some probably much, much later than that, um, or, or I should say earlier than that. Traditionally, psalms were attributed to King David. There are 140 psalms in total. Most scholars do not think that, that King David actually wrote them, but, but that has been a kind of classical Judeo-Christian way of, of looking at them. Uh, they're poetic in structure. You know, they read as, as poetry. They're, they're beautiful works. Um, and they are, for that reason, sung and recited in ancient and modern Jewish worship. At the time that the temple stood in Jerusalem, uh, we know that psalms were, were sung uh, for, the, for the people by the, the Levites, by the servants of the priests. So we, we know from uh, rabbinic literature that psalms played an important role in, in ancient Jewish worship. And of course, today in, the, in modern Jewish liturgy, uh, the Psalms are read and, and chanted over and over and, and over again. So it plays a really important role in, in Jewish worship. And the 150 Psalms in very different ways reflect a, a very wide range of human emotions 
and experiences, maybe more than any other biblical book. I want to just give a couple quick examples. We're not going to look at the actual verses, just to, to give you a sense of, of how diverse they really are. Um, Psalm 5 is a plea for protection and deliverance. Psalm 6 is a prayer where the author um, asks for recovery uh, and, and for healing uh, when he is going through a very difficult time. Um, Psalm 22 is a cry of abandonment and, and pain. Um, many of you may know this, this uh, early verse. In Aramaic, the vernacular of the time, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Traditionally ascribed to, to the author, but as many of you may know, uh, also viewed in, in, in the Christian world as the seven last words of Jesus. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, these are the words that Jesus says before he dies on the cross. And whether he actually said them or not, I don't know. But as a young Jewish man uh, who was educated, he certainly would have known this line uh, from Psalm 22. Another one, Psalm 23, expresses this kind of messianic hope in the face of anxiety. It's a psalm that I and other clergy uh, often recite, J Jewish and Christian clergy, um, at funerals. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And it ends with a reference to a, a cup running over. So again, it expresses this kind of messianic hope, even when we are uh, traveling through the valley of the shadow of death. And then finally, we're only looking at a handful of them. The last Psalm, Psalm 150, after expressions of anxiety and pain and, and fear, the very last Psalm is an expression of ecstatic praise. It says, let all who breathe, let all who have breath um, praise God. It opens with the word hallelujah, which means praise God, and ends with the word uh, hallelujah. So you can see they cover a wide range of, of human thoughts and, and emotions. Another genre of spiritual writing. Uh, a third and final one we're going to look at from the Bible itself, a very different kind of genre, um, spiritual writing, which is much more philosophical. This is from the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, the, the Hebrew word for Ecclesiastes is Kohelet. Um, and again, this was um, a little uh, closer to our time than Psalms and Jeremiah, but it was still, you know, again, almost 2,500 years old. It's a work of wisdom literature. Uh, in the ancient Near East, there was a sub-genre of spiritual writing called wisdom literature. Usually um, older men, because I think in almost all cases they were men. Sometimes they were royalty. Uh, frequently they were sages. And they would impart their wisdom to other people. Marcus Aurelius uh, wrote a, a book called Meditations, another example of wisdom literature. Um, it reflects the Hellenistic influence of the time. Um, Greek culture uh, pervaded uh, um, Israel uh, at this time. And so many Jews were uh, assimilated in, into Hellenistic culture. Uh, many of the educated class, certainly someone like Ecclesiastes, would have been familiar with the works of Aristotle and some of the pre-Socratic philosophers. Um, and we see that in, in his writing. Um, it's for that reason more philosophical than, than most of the other biblical books, even though there are autobiographical elements. 
And it's a very controversial part of the Hebrew canon. In fact, there's a debate within the canonizers of scripture about whether it should even be included because it is so Hellenistic and it is so unique and different compared uh, to the other biblical books. They thought it was too Hellenistic. It wasn't Jewish enough. You know, another reason was it, it, it can get pretty depressing in the worldview of the author. And that was another reason they weren't sure they wanted to include it in the Hebrew canon. But luckily the rabbis had the courage and the foresight to include it and say, you know what, this is part of the Jewish experience and um, we need to include um, this particular perspective as well as, as other kinds of perspectives uh, that might seem a little more comfortable. So I'll just look at a couple of uh, uh, quick ones here tonight. Um, one is in chapter one where Kohelet offers a kind of meditation on time. One generation goes, another generation comes, but the earth always remains the same. The sun rises and the sun sets and returning to its place, it rises there once more. Uh, sometimes this line is, is um, translated as the sun also rises. And that's where Hemingway got the title for one of his you know, breakout books, The Sun Also Rises. Uh, it goes on and says, whatever has been is what will be and whatever has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. So Kohelet seems to be saying that, that, that um, nothing ever changes. There's nothing new under the sun. The sun rises, the sun sets, the earth remains the same. Now he might've been responding to one of the pre-Socratic philosophers. Uh, one of the pre very important uh, um, philosophers who predated Socrates was named Heraclitus. And Heraclitus came up with that very famous idea that you can never step into the same river twice. Change is a part of the human condition. You know, and, and if you look at a river, it, you know, one moment and look at it again, another moment, it's not the same river. And he uses that as a metaphor for life. Life is always fluid. Life is always changing. Kohelet seems to be challenging that worldview, whether because he's Jewish or whether because he's just a different kind of a philosopher. He's saying the opposite. He's not saying that everything changes. He's saying that nothing changes. So whether you agree with this or not, you can see how philosophical this biblical book is and it's spiritual writing, but of a very different order than, than Jeremiah or, or Psalms. Um, and then finally, in chapter two, he said, first he talks about all these incredible things he achieved or, 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 or did. He talks about all the wealth that he had. He was a king of Israel. All of the wealth that he had, all of the palaces that he had, all of the concubines that he had, uh, you know, the great gardens that he built, the wisdom that he achieved. He talks about all of these things. But then at the end, he says, when I considered all the things that I had done, and the energy I had expended in doing them, it was clear that the whole of it was futility and a grasping at the wind, and none of it was profitable for a person's life under the sun. So he's essentially um, critiquing what he did his entire life and, and basically saying that, you know, pursuing material wealth, pursuing uh, titles, um, pursuing anything of material value is ultimately grasping at wind. You know, as he says in the beginning of Kohelet, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, 
Sometimes it's translated as futility of futilities, but he's basically saying that for all those who pursue um, power, ego, titles, you know, et cetera, you know, it, it's a pursuit of wind um, because the rich man and the poor man are all gonna go to the same place, the sage and the fool. And um, for that reason, um, at the end, he says, you know, we need to keep the commandments, but um, at least through the bulk of his book, he's really criticizing uh, most of, of what people seem to do uh, during the course of their lives. Okay, let's go. We, we looked at three different biblical writers uh, or, or biblical books, Jeremiah, Psalms, and Kohelet. One that was confessional, one that was more poetic, Psalms, and, and finally Kohelet, uh, another that was more about ideas, that was more intellectual, more philosophical. Let's look, and that gives us a little bit of a foundation in terms of spiritual writing and the various genres. So let's look now on some of the later spiritual writers. Augustine of Hippo, uh, St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, very important Christian figure who had a lot of impact on me uh, when I first read him in college. Judah Halevi, Yehuda Halevi, uh, a Jewish philosopher and poet uh, who lived during the Golden Age in Spain, in the Middle Ages. Rumi, a very important um, Islamic scholar and poet who was heavily influenced by the um, Islamic mystical movement uh, known as Sufism. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, very important American Protestant theologian and writer, major figure in the American Great Awakening in the 18, 18th century. Martin Luther King Jr., who I think all of us know, you know, very important towering figure in, in the United States during the civil rights era, um, incredible orator, sermonizer who was assassinated, uh, but who continues to have impact on us. Uh, and then a couple of contemporary uh, American writers who I would consider spiritual writers, Kathleen Norris, uh, who I met when I lived in New York, and Anne Lamott. And I want to give a shout out here to Trina Nussbaum, who exposed me to Anne Lamott, who I was not familiar with. Uh, Anne lives out here in the Bay Area. So let's uh, take a look at Augustine, who um, is uh, more recent, you know, he's still over 1500 years old, but more recent than the biblical books. And this is from his book, The Confessions, um, that changed my life when I read it in um, college. And you'll see, um, I think a nod or, or the impact of Jeremiah's confessions on his book. And after all, he calls it the confessions. And it's sort of his memoir as a, an older monk, an older priest about what his life was like uh, as a young man and, and the, the conversion experience he went through. So we're only looking at a few quick uh, passages. He says, when he was younger, I ran wild with lust. I could not distinguish the clear light of true love with the murk of lust. And then he goes on and says, your almighty power, he's talking about God, is not far from us, even when we are far from you. So in some ways, while this is autobiographical and confessional, it's also a little bit doctrinal because he's sneaking in here, maybe not sneaking, but he's conveying to us some important Christian doctrines the doctrine of, of, of sin and repentance, the, the distancing and the alienation that our transgressions, that our sin um, 
make between us and God. So um, in classical Christianity, in Orthodox Christianity, certainly in Augustinian Christianity, the Christianity of the early Catholic Church, there was an enormous focus on sin. And, you know, big surprise, we see that in Augustine's Confessions. So he talks about his lust. He talks about, you know, how far away he was from true love, um, how God is, is um, not very far from, it, from us, even though we're, we're very far from him. So, you know, very clear um, Christian idea of, of, of sin. And then he goes on and says, when he's talking about his struggle, trying to become a priest and renouncing the things of the world, kind of like Kohelet does, um, he says, I held back from the step by which I should die to death and become alive to life. The idea of resurrection, spiritual resurrection, being born again. I know that my soul is the better part of me, but God is even more. God is the life of the life of my soul. Again, he's talking about this Christian idea of resurrection, spiritual resurrection, being born again. So he's talking about his own journey, but he's also able to, to convey to us Christian dogma, Christian doctrine as he's doing it. It's not the systematic theology that we're going to see, um, you know, eight or 900 years later uh, with St. Thomas Aquinas. This is a very different way of conveying similar dogma and doctrine. It's a personal narrative. It's not systematic theology. And yet he is still conveying to us some very classic Orthodox Christian ideas. Okay, Judah Halevi uh, lived during the Golden Age in Spain, roughly 12th, 13th centuries, uh, when Jews, Christians, and Muslims in many ways had this, I wouldn't call it utopian era, but there were, there were a lot of problems. But um, there was a lot of intellectual ferment a lot of dialogue, a lot of influence on one another. In fact, Thomas Aquinas, in um, his writings, uh, in his, his most important work, the Summa Theologica, refers to Maimonides, who lived at that time, as the rabbi. And he re refers to Aristotle as the philosopher. Um, there were some very important Jewish, Christian, and Muslim thinkers at this time. And Judah Halevi lived during this time. And he wrote uh, poetry, and this is one of them, where he expresses his comfort living in Spain, but also his longing to be back in the Holy Land. He says, my heart is in the East and I am at the edge of the West. Then how can I taste what I eat? How can I enjoy it? How can I fulfill my vows and pledges while Zion is in the domain of Edom and I am in the bonds of Arabia? It would be easy for me to leave behind all the good things of Spain. It would be glorious to see the dust of the ruined shrine. Now, ultimately, Judah Halevi does travel to Israel, and he does die there uh, before in 1141. But what he's conveying is this um, acculturated, well-educated Jew living in Spain during this golden age where he's interacting with all these other people he, he's saying that as, as wonderful as that is, as a Jew, and, and here he expresses the Zionist passion that so many Jews have expressed through literature and poetry and prayer 
ever since the Romans destroyed the temple in the year 70. I know that I don't know that I would call this political Zionism, because that in some ways doesn't really start till the 19th and 20th centuries. And then um, when the Jewish nation, nation state is established in 1948, um, this is more of a, of a cultural Zionism or a spiritual Zionism. But he yearns to be in the land of Canaan. He yearns to be free of the bonds of Arabia. Um, uh, Spain and Portugal at this time were under the control of Muslim rule. And he says, you know, because Israel and the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed at this point. Uh, there wasn't much left of the temple. Uh, that's why they call it the Western Wall, or they called it the Wailing Wall, um, at least until 1948, because after the Romans destroyed the temple, that's all that was left. And Yehuda HaLevi seems to be saying here, you know what, I'd rather be in Jerusalem, you know, looking at the destroyed stones, the, ru the ruins, the dust of the sacred uh, second temple, then, you know, having great food and wine, you know, um, living, um, living, you know, the, the good life in, in, um, in Spain. So it's a different kind of spiritual writing. It's poetry. But again, sort of like Augustine, I don't know that I would say Yehuda Halevi is conveying Jewish doctrine. Judaism is not a doctrinal religion in the way that Christianity is. It's more of a dialogical uh, religion. Uh, but he is conveying Jewish ideas of, uh, of yearning to be reunited, to be back in, in the Holy Land. Let's move to Rumi. Um, I am not an expert in Rumi by any means. In fact, when I taught this course at EMU, uh, one of my um, friends and uh, fellow faculty members at the time, uh, Dr. Amir Akrami, uh, was our guest. I, I taught a comparative monotheisms course with him. Amazing guy, great Muslim scholar, and a scholar of Islam from Iran. And uh, he came in as our guest speaker to teach about Rumi and Muslim uh, mysticism. And I'm just going to read a, a quick um, quatrain um, from his writing, where he says, on the seeker's path, wise men and fools are one. In his love, brothers and strangers are one. Go on, drink the wine of the beloved. In that faith, Muslim, Muslims and pagans are one. Now, many of us, for lots of different reasons, have preconceptions about Islam uh, here in um, North America. But Rumi, uh, while he was uh, a scholar of Islam, he was also a Sufi. And much of his poetry, but not all, much of his poetry conveys this mystical idea shared by Jews and Christians, by Jew Jewish and Christian mystics, of the unity of, of, of all life, the, the unity of all things. And in this way, as he says here, wise men and fools are one. FYI, in the book of Kohelet, the book of Ecclesiastes, he says exactly the same thing. It's a little different. He says the sage and the fool all go to the same place. But in some ways, he's saying they're one and the same. Uh, Rumi says brothers and strangers are one. Muslims and pagans are one. Rather than um, denouncing pagans, you know, calling pagans infidels, uh, what Rumi seems to be saying is that pagans and Muslims um, are united in the same way that brothers and strangers and wise men or fools are united. Not a, not a typical way we think about um, 
Islam. And again, here we have a, a, a spiritual writer, a poet, trying to convey an idea about um, Islam, or at least about his take on, on Islam. I mentioned Jonathan Edwards. Um, he uh, writes in an essay called Personal Narrative about a kind of a conversion experience that he had uh, when he was um, walking through nature. I believe it was upstate New York. Uh, I can't remember exactly where it was, um, but he says that after walking through nature, the appearance of everything was altered. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm, sweet cast or appearance of divine glory in almost everything. God's excellency, God's wisdom, his purity and love seem to appear in everything, in the sun, the moon, and stars, in the clouds and blue sky, in the grass, flowers, and trees, in the water, and all of nature. And he goes on to talk about how everything in nature is but a reflection or a resemblance of the divine nature. So when we look at creation, we need to look behind the veil of creation and see the creator who, who formed it. So, you know, he's not the first spiritual writer to talk about the link between creation and, and the creator. But here we have a, a Protestant American thinker, you know, conveying it in, in a really powerful way. Um, I have a couple more. Okay, I, I'm going to finish up in the next just few minutes. Uh, Martin Luther King, we talked about before. Um, this is arguably the most famous sermon ever delivered in the United States. So I'm not going to read it for you. But take a look at it, read it on your own. It's messianic in its aspirations. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. People will be judged one day by this, not by the color of their skin, by the content of their character. You know, I'd be curious what he thinks about our country today in light of all the, the racism uh, that is still so prevalent um, in, our, in our society. Um, but here we have another type of, of spiritual writing. It's not philosophical, it's not a poem, it's not an essay, it's a sermon. And a lot of people forget that, that the sermon at one point was, was an incredibly popular uh, type of spiritual writing. In fact, there was a, a rabbi in New York City during the 30s and 40s named Stephen S. Wise, and he was a, a strong Zionist, uh, and he would fill up Madison Square Garden when he would deliver his sermons. So Martin Luther King conveys this you know, messianic vision for the world. It's a dream, really, his dream for, for our society um, through this sermon, you know, another type of writing. And we're gonna close with, with two contemporary thinkers. I won't do them justice because we don't have enough time. <coughs> Kathleen Ro Norris wrote a book called Dakota. I heard her speak in New York. Um, she has an MFA in poetry. Uh, she inherited a house in uh, South Dakota, moved out there, spent a lot of time with monks and nuns, and wrote some beautiful uh, words about that experience. You can look at some of them here. But again, she, she conveys some of the Christian ideas, particularly monastic ideas, through very contemporary uh, writing, the idea of attaching yourself to a place. Well, some monks take a vow of permanence, not just poverty and chastity, but permanence. So she talks about the importance of attaching yourself to a place and surrendering to it. Um, the spiritual power of, of the desert in all of its stillness and isolation and how it can bring us back to love. You know, some very 
very powerful ideas that to me remind me of the writings of the early Christian monks, the Desert Fathers in the second and third centuries. Uh, she's got a great line here about everyone saying that everything is holy, but not many people are willing to haul ass to church four or five times a day to sing about it. It's not for the faint of heart. So, you know, she may romanticize monasticism a little bit, um, but she does a beautiful job in, in a modern idiom of, of conveying spiritual ideas. And then finally, Anne Lamott um, lives in, in the Bay Area, as I said. She talks about grace, not a uniquely Christian idea, but an idea that is um, well-developed in, in Christian thought. And she says, I think very beautifully here that, you know, she, she doesn't understand the mystery of grace. If you're lucky enough to experience grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. And it can be received gladly or grudgingly in big gulps or in tiny tastes, like a deer at a salt lake, like a deer at the salt. So if you're open, if you're lucky enough to, to receive grace, um, it's going to be transformative, whether you like it or not. So you either welcome it with open arms take big gulps out of it, or do it grudgingly in tiny tastes, but one way or another, it's going to change you forever. So a, a final example of spiritual writing uh, from a contemporary, and I think very hip, uh, modern writer. So sorry, I rushed a little bit at the end, but I think I ended exactly on time. So uh, I think we're going to open up now for some questions. And I'm going to turn things over to, to Fred. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um... Niles, that's uh, really a thought-provoking talk. Um, I encourage any of you who have uh, questions or comments to type them into the Q&A and just click on the Q&A button down at the bottom of your screen and you can type in your questions. If you're on Facebook Live, type them into the comments and Marty Eads will pass them on. Um, while we're waiting, maybe I'll take moderator's privilege and ask you the first question, but it, occurred to me as we were going through all those passages that there was a kind of therapeutic tone to a lot of them. And that these days, often I think people's first instincts are to go to therapists for what a lot of this spiritual writing provides. Are you worried at all that psychotherapy may run spiritual writing out of business or is there is there something different going on between uh, spiritual or, or about spiritual writing that, that that's going to keep it alive and vital? Well, it's a good question. I agree with you. I, th I think the latter, I think spiritual writing is, is unique enough as a genre that psycho modern psychotherapy, you know, as an outgrowth of secularism, modern, cult modern secular culture, I don't think it's going to ever eclipse it. Uh, Plenty of people who go to therapy still go to houses of worship uh, to find spiritual nourishment, to find community, to find fulfillment. You know, psychotherapy is largely um, a solitary uh, process, even though it's dialogical, you know, with the, the therapist you're talking to, with the exception of, I think, Jungian therapy, which I know a little bit about. I, I think psychotherapy doesn't really go as deeply, if at all, into some of the ideas that um, spiritual writing does that I tried to highlight tonight, whether it's the feeling of exile or um, grace or resurrection or sin and repentance. But I do think you're spot on in that some of the writing, whether it's Jeremiah or Augustine 
uh, or, or others, when it's confessional in nature, it is very cathartic. You know, it, it probably did have a very psychotherapeutic um, uh, uh, utility uh, for the person who, who said it or, or wrote it down. But I, I don't think that modern psychotherapy is going to replace this kind of this kind of writing. Do we have any questions at all? <laughs> I guess everyone has it down perfectly. <laughs> we'll wait a little bit, but I can, uh, I, I've, I've got a whole list of questions in my own head that I can uh, keep peppering you with, but I'd encourage anybody to go ahead and uh, type your question or comment into the, into the Q&A. Let's go from therapy to politics. There's also a number, several times where politics came up during the uh, during the talk as well. You talked about the connection to Zionism. Um, of course, Martin Luther King's uh, sermon had real political um, consequence. Um, can you say more about how spiritual writing has been used? politically, or what's the relationship between the spirit and politics? That's a good question. You know, I, I think there's a, a, almost um, a dichotomy in, in some of the spiritual writing that I've seen, because some of it, uh, like the prophetic uh, books, uh, like um, some of what we read in um, uh, the Gospels, is uh, very public and very political, where you have prophets or prophetic figures challenging the status quo, challenging the polit political establishment of their time. I mean, the biblical prophets did that constantly. We looked at Jeremiah, but Hosea almost did that. Jesus did that. I mean, so that's a type of spiritual writing that is very public and very political. But you also have a type of spiritual writing that, that some scholars call quietistic. Uh, and the quietistic spiritual writers who were often mystics or monks were not as interested in engaging in the political, with, with the political establishment. They were not, um, you know, their, their goal in life was not to try to change society. And this could be a criticism of them as well as, um, you know, uh, praise of them. Um, as a Jew, I am a little critical of, of devoting your entire life just to prayer and meditation and not engaging with the, the wider world, you know, not fighting against in, injustice or, or feeding the hungry or clothing the naked. But, but so that spiritual genre um, is much more contemplative, much more prayerful, and much more focused on helping to elevate people and their souls and their spiritual natures than really calling truth to power the way some of the other writing is. So I think there, there, are, there are a lot of other genres, but those are two of the big ones uh, to, to my mind. There was the, uh, I have a question here. There was a su suggestion that the act of spiritual writing affects or changes the writer. Can you say more about this? Yeah, that's a good uh, question or comment. Um, you know, going back to your point, Fred, I think, I think in the case of Augustine, 
when he wrote Confessions, when he was already a monk and a priest, he might have even been a, a bishop at that time, and he's looking back as an older man at his youth and, and the, the trajectory of his life. I think it helped to, gave, to give him perspective on his life. So I think spiritual writing can give the author, the writer, more perspective um, uh, on his or her journey. Not to compare myself at all to Augustine or Jeremiah, but when I, when I wrote my book, uh, Eight Questions of Faith, which I finished when I was in uh, uh, Bridgewater and, and teaching at EMU, um, it was a, a couple of things for me. It was catharsis for me when I was going through a, a challenging period in my life. And it was also, um, it also gave me perspective. It helped me to better understand some of what I had been through, some of what I was going through, and, and ultimately um, helped me to figure out what I wanted to do with the next chapter of my life. So I think in that way, um, spiritual writing can play a lot of different roles um, uh, in the life of the author. And for no other reason, if you're a teacher and not all spiritual writers are, are, are educators, but if you like to teach, you know, um, when you have some books under your belt or, or some poems, you know, you can go out and start teaching people. And uh, when I saw Kathleen Norris teach at the Open Center in New York, you know, she was teaching about um, this book, Dakota, that I quoted from. And, um, you know, you, you also have an opportunity to, to teach people in a way that's different from, let's say, pastoral counseling, which is a part of being a congregational rabbi or minister or priest. Um, another question, in your experience, what would you say is the criterion for a really impactful, nourishing spiritual writing? Not a cocooning comfort writing, but the kind that is like grace, taking us where we are and leading us somewhere else. Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. That's a big one. <laughs> what's the <laughs> criterion? Um, or what's the criteria? You know, I don't know if there's a single, a single criterion. Well, I guess, uh, you know, on the cuff and with our limited time, you know, that's a kind of deep question I'd want to be more reflective on. But, but the one thing that pops into my head that I think I would stick with is authenticity. You know, going back to Jeremiah, again, that's why I started with him. And my book begins with a, an exploration of the book of Jeremiah. I think if you're not authentic, if you're not painfully honest at times, I don't think your writing is um, going to work either for you or for your audience. So, you know, I guess that would be the criterion, the most important criterion for me in terms of spiritual writing. And, and as I think about it, all of the different examples of spiritual writing that we've looked at tonight, um, they're all very, very honest. They're all authentic, whether they're poetic or philosophical or autobiographical or homiletical. You know, they all convey emotion as well as intellect. You know, all of these authors are bringing their, their full souls in a holistic way uh, to their craft. Um, so I guess I would say that authenticity is at the very top of the list. Okay, uh, we're about out of time. This will be the final question. Could you say something about the relationship between the spiritual writer and their own faith community or society that they're part of? 
Well, I can say as a writer myself who's tried to harmonize, you know, writing books and articles and essays with being a congregational rabbi, it's really hard. That's why when I was at EMU and for several years after, and I taught at Loyola University for a couple of years in Chicago, and uh, I think Fred and I just missed each other there, because um, I know Fred had a, Fred, how many years were you at Loyola? Uh, about 19. Yeah, a long time. Um, you know, I, I walked away from the pulpit for uh, seven or eight years because I wasn't sure I could be the kind of person and, and writer that I wanted to be. Um, notably, I have not written a new book since the challenge, uh, since Eight Questions of Faith came out. Uh, now, whether that's because of where I am in my life or because the demands of having a congregation are too intense right now, you know, I don't, I don't know. But it's very hard, I think, to be a serious writer and also to have a congregation. I think having a congregation and the relationships you develop there and the experiences you can have can definitely inform your writing and can sometimes make the writing better. But to be honest, I think it's, it's hard because congregational life is incredibly rewarding, but it's also very draining. It's a constant push and pull between self and community, between your public life and, and your private life. And your public life often wins out to the detriment of your solitary, more prayerful life. So it's, it's really hard, but I, I'm, I'm gonna keep trying with my career to harmonize the two. And I think it works best when you have a community that is supportive of this craft and not every congregation or community you know, wants their spiritual leader to be doing this kind of thing. You know, I would just say really quickly, Kierkegaard, very, very important um, Christian mystic and, and spiritual writer who I didn't talk about tonight. Um, his father was a parson, his brother was a parson. He thought about it and rejected it because he didn't think he could ever serve a community of Lutherans uh, in Copenhagen and still write in the way that he wanted to write. So he completely rejected community uh, and just wrote books. And that was, that was how he, you know, expressed his spiritual life and his relation to God. That's an extreme example, but um, it shows you how far one person at least went to try to pursue spiritual writing as, as a vocation. Well, Niles, thank you very much for this uh, kind of travelogue through really century multiple centuries of, of, uh, of spiritual writing. It's been really enlightening. And thanks to all of you who helped contribute to the conversation uh, in, in the Q&A. Um, it's been a really, uh, really interesting and thought-provoking evening. So thank you to all of you. Uh, make sure you take advantage of some of the other events this week during the ACE Festival. And Niles, thanks again for coming back to EMU, at least virtually, and uh, we'll find a way to get you back in, here in person. Yeah, I would love that, Fred. Thank, thank you, and thanks to everyone so much for, for joining us. Good night. Good night.